Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist at Cygnos. This is Season 2, Episode 3, Being Kind to Yourself and Other Psychological Tips for Weight Loss. Our guest on today's show is Dr. Erica Holliday. Dr. Holliday is a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist. She has her certification in EMDR, is a qualified medical examiner, and she teaches undergraduate students at Los Angeles Valley College and has taught graduate students at the University of Southern California. Lastly, she also happens to be my wife. On today's episode, we'll dive into the importance of self-kindness during the weight loss journey, the traps of catastrophizing and all-or-nothing thinking, and the importance of breaking maladaptive behaviors. Today's broadcast is part therapy session, as well as great tips and advice on how to be kind to yourself as we approach the new year. Now on to today's show. Welcome to Body Signals. We're so excited to have Dr. Erica Holliday on the show today. She's not just a clinical psychologist, a forensic psychologist, a qualified medical examiner. She's also my wife. Hello. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is the first time we had a guest just come from upstairs down to the recording studio. And during the pandemic, this is our first live in-studio interview. So I don't know, do I call you doctor? Do I call you Erica? This is so strange. (laughs) I think we'll just launch with a question. So maybe we'll start. Well, I'll give you a real life example. I went to the store just the other day and I bought a uh, small bag of Tate's uh, cookies, chocolate chip cookies. They just came out with a vegan version, which I was so excited to bring home and try. And it was sitting on the counter, walked by, middle of the day. I've been so careful with what I've been eating, monitoring my glucose levels using Cygnos. But I couldn't resist. I opened the bag and had two or three. I can't remember how many. (laughs) Maybe I can remember. I just don't want to say. But I had a couple of cookies and watched my glucose levels skyrocket. And then I got angry with myself. I thought, oh, how could I be so stupid to, one, buy these leave them out and then go and eat them and and make my, my glucose levels rise. That gave rise to the question in my own mind is how important is things are, are things like self-kindness in the weight loss journey. And I thought no better person to ask than literally our resident psychologist (laughs) here. So what what what's going on in my head when I get so angry at myself? Or what is that? going on in your head? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, um, I have a practice and I uh, specialize in trauma, depression, uh, anxiety disorders, and uh, I, I use. I use CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and EMDR, which is used for trauma. With CBT, to answer your question, with CBT, um, just to sort of lay the foundation for you, uh, CBT was developed by someone named Aaron Beck, and he talks about these um, faulty uh, reasonings or faulty logic that many of us use. So, for example, some of them are black and white thinking, 
uh, catastrophizing, catastrophizing is a big one. So, so what happens is an individual may start to catastrophize, which will lead them to feel bad, which then can lead them to engaging in these destructive or maladaptive behaviors, such as uh, binge eating or overeating or just using food as a way of coping. So it is something like that, was something like that going on? I don't know that that was going okay. on, but what was going on was, I would have to say it was just kind of a mindless thing of walking by. Yeah, the cookies were kind of on my mind, but uh, I, I don't know in the moment if I was catastrophizing. What was interesting is what happened after I had the cookies. So then, yeah, the, the anger, I don't know if it was catastrophizing, maybe a little bit, because maybe I was thinking to myself, ah, I've fallen off the wagon. Okay, so for the rest of the day, I guess we're just going to maybe start over tomorrow and I can really eat whatever I want. I don't think I ate that well after having the cookies. So maybe... Well, the catastrophizing would have been before, um, or it could have been something else. I, I don't know. I never I never okay. would think of cookies in a catastrophe <laughs> setting, I don't think. Well, Well, like I said it was a form of self-soothing. So as opposed to doing something adaptive, like working out, going for a walk, uh, listening to music, uh, it was the maladaptive coping strategy of, of using food as a form of, of, of soothing yourself. This is so interesting. I feel like I'm in a therapy session now. We've never <laughs> actually done this. But yeah, maybe I was soothing. Okay. Um, or, I mean, sometimes I feel like I eat just out of boredom. So what would that sure. be? Sure. Well, eating out of boredom. That's that's certainly so possible. I, how, how am I soothing? Am I trying to soothe myself from the boredom? Or is there something else going on? Um, so if we were in an actual, in a real therapy session, I would explore that deeper with you. But I don't think uh, this is the right place to actually delve into that. Um, but but boredom, sure, of course, it could it could not be catastrophizing or or any type of faulty logic. Like I talked about these cognitive distortions, it doesn't have to be that. It could absolutely be boredom, or people sometimes even use food as a reward. They they say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm feeling actually really good today, or I've been good, and and so I want to reward myself with a treat." So it doesn't have to be negative, um, but certainly it can be. Well, you touched on some interesting things that I want to dive into deeper. So that reward thing. This is something that when we've had Dr. Dixon on the show, he's mentioned, but yeah, oftentimes you go, you do a really hard workout. Maybe I run a few miles on the treadmill. I get off and I think, wow, I worked out really hard. I deserve to mm -hmm. eat something that maybe I shouldn't. And doesn't that set up some sort of risk reward paradigm around food that's not that healthy? Right, because then you can get caught up in that cycle of using food as a reward and 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 then you begin to expect it, right? And then you set yourself up for failure because what if you then don't end up meeting your goals and you you wanted that treat and now you're going to end up feeling really bad. So ra I, I would suggest rather than using food as a reward to, to use, going back to, like I said, the adaptive coping strategies, using something else 
um, like taking a walk or listening to music or taking a bath, you know, I'm big on taking baths. For me, that's a treat. At the end of the day, I love taking a bath. It feels so good. I look forward to that all day. And so something like that would be a healthier approach. So I'm curious, in your own practice, are there some common maladaptive behaviors that seem to come up regularly? Are there some common ones that we can talk about? Yeah, I would say the two, I mentioned the catastrophizing, that's one. The second one is the black and white thinking, also known as dichotomous thinking, also known as all or nothing thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's that popular. It has three different names. It, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, all or nothing. I'm either going to be, you know, using food as, as an example, I'm either going to be completely strict with my diet and exercise. And then one thing sets the person off and it's, then it's over, you know, and then the binge eating begins and then it's, you know, off to the races with the poor choices. Yeah. I, I, I identify with that. And I just mentioned, you know, with the cookies, I don't think I ate that well afterwards. Maybe it was that type of thinking, but I also remember going to a family function recently, having a big piece of cake. And then after I'd done that, I, I was angry at myself, but that at the same time, I kind of gave myself license to just fall off the wagon and eat as much as possible. I think you were mad at my mom too for shoving that cake in your face. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say Erica's mom, (laughs) lovely woman. She thinks I'm too thin. So she's constantly (laughs) pushing food in front of me, trying to get me to eat. The Hungarian way. It is the Hungarian (laughs) way. So fascinating. So what about this other thing that's happening? This um, just being angry at myself. How important is self-kindness? in an individual's weight loss journey? Well, of course, kindness in general, whether it's kindness to others or kindness to yourself is extremely important. I I see this in my practice. People are just so hard on themselves. And I, I find myself saying that every day to people, you are so hard on yourself. You know, there's this tendency we have to live up to these expectations that are just not realistic to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfection. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And so I think the answer to that is that when you do make a mistake, because we're all going to make mistakes, that's a part of life, rather than using that as a way to beat yourself up and then even using food as a way to cope to, um, to, to just try and let that go, whatever it was to say, okay, I made a mistake. What can I learn from that? And now I'm going to move on. Dwelling on it, engaging in um, rumination, perseverating, um, we talk a lot about that, uh, is, is, is not um, healthy and it's not adaptive. It just gets you into trouble. So if I'm going to interrupt that cycle, should I maybe just take a few breaths, try and interrupt it, and then try and give myself that break. Yeah, it's 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 literally just stopping, yeah, taking deep breaths. You know, I'm big on mindfulness is bringing yourself back to the present and to engage in um just the here and now, letting it go. Um that whether it's the staying stuck in the past or the future, which is what anxiety is. Anxiety is uh, focused on a future event and believing something negative is going to happen and, and staying in that place. So when you bring yourself back to the present, 
um, and reminding yourself you're okay, everything is okay, you know, everything around you is fine. You, you people tend to calm down in those moments. Yeah, and I think that's a great tip. I, I think sometimes when I think that way. I don't even realize that I'm thinking that way. I get so trapped in it. So mm-hmm. maybe a good tip for our listeners is to try and listen to your own own talk in your mind that's happening and see if you recognize any of these um, these moments where you're not kind to yourself. And at that point, take the break. And Yeah, you know, I think people don't realize how much they engage in negative self-talk and also how much of that negative self-talk may not even belong to you. A, a lot of times, you know, I said, I, I work with trauma patients that, um, people have internalized, uh, messages they received from their primary care t- takers have internalized them and, and, and start to engage in negative self-talk that was just passed down to them, that was told to them or they heard, and they start to believe that it's true. And so to, to even just first ask yourself, does this even belong to me? Where does this come from? And, and, and then to practice um, letting, that, letting that go. Yeah, I, I want to get to trauma. But before we do, I want to touch on one other thing in terms of this negative self-talk. I've on the show before made the mistake of labeling foods, good foods, bad foods. And our staff nutritionist, Jody Geigel, who we've had on for a couple of episodes, very early on corrected me and said, no, Bill, don't don't talk about foods in terms of good and bad. Could that be one of the things that leads you into this negative self-talk? Sure. And I feel like that goes back to the all or nothing thinking, right? When you say good or bad, it's very extreme. You know, anytime we engage in extreme behaviors, it's typically not good. Um, why, why would you say food is good and food is bad? Food is food, right? And, and I think if you want to have a cookie, like you want that day, you, you wanted to have a cookie. If you want to have a cookie, have a cookie, you know, to not label, oh, the cookie is bad. I can't eat the cookie. And then you eat the cookie and now you feel bad, you know, um, to, if you do have the cookie to say, okay, I wanted the cookie. I had the cookie, right? <laughs> Why, why beat yourself up about it? I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't. And I'm going to try and take those suggestions. So I, I want to move into this topic of trauma. But before we do, can you explain? You mentioned uh, at the beginning that you practice EMDR. Can you maybe just give us a little overview of what EMDR sure, is? Sure, sure. Um, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it was developed by Francine Shapiro in the 80s. Uh, She was actually taking a walk and she was darting her eyes back and forth very quickly while she was reliving a traumatic event. And she noticed that she started to feel less anxious. And so she developed this protocol for trauma patients where the practitioner will actually have the patient dart their eyes back and forth. It can be through tapping or actually moving their eyes or um, even just uh, using their hands um, with a sensor and um, reliving the trauma. And it actually, um, research has found that by um, reliving the trauma using EMDR, it moves the trauma outside of the limbic system, which is the area used or the area that triggers fight or flight to the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible 
for decision making. And so when you move the trauma to the prefrontal cortex, the person then doesn't have the fight or flight activated when, when the trauma is ignited. Does that okay. make sense? That is that, is that too, too much? That does, no, it's not too much. And a <laughs> okay. little, little bit of trivia. I was actually reading up on EMDR and the development by, I'm sorry, what was her name? Francine Shapiro. Francine Shapiro. She actually developed this for those of you listening from Silicon Valley at Stanford and I believe she was on a walk, and I'm almost certain that walk was, oh, that's the, right. it was yeah. the Stanford Dish Walk, which yeah. I've done many times. And most of you who are from that area know that. Just a little bit of trivia. <laughs> so we, uh, in preparation for this episode, we were talking about all the different topics we could address. And you brought up um, trauma, which for a sec, it took me a second to kind of connect trauma with food. What was that connection okay. that you saw? Yeah, so the connection is that food or using food as a way of coping is just one of the several different types of maladaptive coping strategies. So food is one of them. Drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling. I'm sure I'm missing a few more, but those are the basic types of maladaptive coping strategies. So um, people who have trauma, who have not dealt with their trauma or seen a trauma specialist, worked through it, could possibly end up using one of those maladaptive coping strategies as a way to deal with the trauma. Okay. Can you give an example of that? Sure. So um, someone, let's say, who um, was sexually abused as a child um, began to develop an eating disorder as a way of sort of checking out from dealing with the trauma. Because, you know, you can use when you're when you're using food, whether it's binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, you're using food and distracting yourself from uncomfortable feelings that are coming up. So you're sort of checking out um, when you're engaging in that destructive behavior. So th- this is one of the things that we would put into the emotional eating category. Is that, mm-hmm. is that yeah. correct? Okay. How, uh, how would our listeners know if there's a connection with a, a previous trauma or childhood trauma with their challenges with food? Well, um, it's, if you find yourself doing mindless eating, um, when I was in, um, graduate school, that's, that was the first time that I got introduced to mindfulness. Uh, Jerome Front was my professor at Pepperdine and he introduced us to John Kabat-Zinn. And I remember my mind was blown by this. Um, he had us sit with a raisin and he had us, um, first stare at the raisin. What felt like hours was probably like 10 minutes, stare at the raisin for 10 minutes, pick up the raisin, feel the raisin, smell the raisin, put the raisin in our mouth. Uh, you can't swallow the raisin, but you have to like chew the raisin for 10 minutes. Anyways, the whole point was that he had us actually practice sitting with what, you know, the sensation, um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of us just, we go through life without being fully present. And so I, going back to your question, I think it's, um, asking yourself, are you engaging in mindless eating? Are you using food as a way to check out? Are you being, when you, when you eat, are you being fully present? Are you tasting the food? Are you enjoying the time that you eat? Um, or is it just, um, as a way to not really think about anything? Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. I, I am so into mindfulness. I know 
most of the listeners that have listened through our episodes know that I talk about it. I do meditate twice a day for like 20 minutes or so. And I've noticed, I don't know, I don't think it maps back to trauma, but I've noticed the more I meditate, there is a gap between when I have the impulse to eat something and when I actually make the decision to eat it. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl Mm -hmm. talks about being human is all about the fact that there is a gap between a stimulus we might experience and our response to that stimulus. Mm -hmm. If I marry that with what... um, what people like John Kabat-Zinn teach us, um, the more you meditate, the more that gap widens. So I might be sitting here doing some work and think, I think I'll have another chocolate chip cookie. I've noticed the longer I've meditated, the bigger that gap becomes. And I can actually make more of a choice rather than just engaging that mindfulness mm-hmm. eating. Mm-hmm. I'm th- so, so excited you brought that up. We won't go into the apple experiment, but I think that's another great uh, way. Um, we'll do a whole episode on that, but just becoming mindful about your food by seeing your response and your blood sugar through running experiments is another great way to be mindful about what you're eating and, and realize that you do have the choice on what it is that you consume. So let's, um, let's talk about something else. We've, um, it's December now and we're getting close to New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And New Year's is when most people make their New Year's resolutions. Do you think this is a healthy habit of picking a day of the year to embark on on these life-changing strategies like losing weight or starting to exercise? I think any time you pick a date in the future to start something, you're setting yourself up for failure. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Because if you truly want to start something, why, why not start it today? You know, I, I've, I've had many people in my practice tell me, you know, in the new year, I'm giving up alcohol or in the new year, you know, I'm going to start whatever it is, you know, and, and, and I'm always asking them the same thing. Why not start it now? Because whenever you put something off, you're, you're avoiding. And when you're avoiding, there's, there's a reason, you know, that, that either, uh, it's fear-based or you're, you, you typically fear-based. So I would say um, to either start it today or to really delve into what it, what's causing you to avoid. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. This, I, this feels like a confessional, but you know, sometimes <laughs> in the past, I don't do this currently, but in the past, I would think about New Year's resolutions and maybe it was around this time of the year, maybe back up to before Thanksgiving. I think to myself, you know what? Thanksgiving's coming up. I want to eat whatever I want. Uh, the holidays are coming. Everyone's bringing cookies into the office back in those days when people went into the office, (laughs) I would postpone embarking on a a weight loss resolution until new year's because I wanted to eat all those things. But that kind of explains why I might have challenges because, uh, I really want to engage in those behaviors. I'm not addressing the root of the issue. And also don't forget people are spending a lot of time uh with their families, family of origin as well as their own families and and oftentimes when that happens stuff comes up, right? Your your childhood issues or traumas may become activated 
and and eating, like I said before, may be one way of dealing with those activations, those uncomfortable feelings that are coming up. So it's important to notice that as well, you know? Well, that's a good point. Well, first, family of origin. I don't know if I've heard that term. Family of origin is the family that you were born into. Okay. Yeah. So whether it's you're going to your own family or maybe your spouse's family's house during the holidays, of course, we've heard all sorts of stories. Uh, We have great families. I don't have you know, quite those stories to tell, but you know, I, I have heard of all the drama that happens when you get together all of uh, all the siblings, perhaps <laughs> at a family gathering. That that does bring up a stressful time, and maybe that time we engage in some mindless eating as well, just because it's so stressful. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and maybe just soothing ourselves too, right? Right, right. Um, people drink a lot more. <laughs> people eat a lot more. Right. That. That's no accident. As as you know, I always say there's no coincidences. We 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 debate this topic. Yeah. I, think, I think many husbands and wives have this debate. So I, another point I wanted to get to is I feel like New Year's is kind of a really cruel time for people that want to lose weight because we're bombarded by all these messages, all these diets about how you can lose 10 pounds in 10 days. And it feels like we're setting ourselves up for failure when come the new year, we engage in very extreme dieting behavior. Yeah. And like I said, any type of extreme is, is, is typically not a good thing. So, so if, if the diet or whatever the regimen, it does seem extreme, it's important to really step back and ask yourself if the, if this is realistic, right? Um, I believe in more of a healthy lifestyle rather than any kind of extreme diet because typically you're just setting yourself up for failure. Is exactly what our message is at Cygnos, making those small changes, lifestyle changes you can maintain for a lifetime versus that quick fix. We, we were talking before the episode about a study that I wrote about in Click, my first book, it was a study uh, by a professor emeritus, Janet Polivi, University of Toronto, where she came up with this term that uh, she called false hope syndrome that was specific to New Year's. And what she did in her study, and this is a fascinating study, she took three groups of women. She only studied women in, in this particular study, which was interesting, but um, I, I think this was done quite a few years ago. She took the women, she divided them into three groups, and it was a two-part experiment. The first group she brought into a room, and all she did was show them an ad that you can lose 12 pounds in, I think it was two weeks. The next group saw an ad that said you can lose six pounds in two weeks. And the final group saw an ad that said you can lose two pounds in two weeks. The second part of the experiment is each group was then taken into a room and told that they would be doing a cookie-tasting experiment. This is my kind of experiment. (laughs) So there was a big plate of cookies and they were asked to taste the cookies and they had a little sheet where they could then review the cookie. And that was the end of the experiment. But what her staff did was after each group left, they weighed the plate of cookies. And the group that was told you could lose the most weight, they're the ones that ate the least amount of cookies. The middle group ate the middle amount, and the ones that told they could only lose two pounds in two weeks ate the most. 
And Dr. Polivi's theory behind this is that when we're confronted with these extreme diets, we build this false hope. It gives us a sense of control. Mm-hmm. We might even lose a lot of weight in the beginning of an extreme diet, but then ultimately we fail because it's not really, main, it's not something you can maintain. It's mm-hmm. not sustainable. And yet we repeat it every single year because what's that trigger for us is that sense of control when we lose a lot of weight at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you've seen this in your practice, just with people coming through and, and their own weight loss journeys, if, you, if you've um, experienced that kind of phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people start a lot of things like this, what you're talking about, like starting um, a weight loss journey that is very extreme um, and, and, and then give up um, because it is too extreme. And so I think the, um, like I said, to step back and ask yourself in the very beginning, if this is realistic, anytime something seems too good to be true, it often is right. (laughs) Um, and, and and so, um, quick fixes, something like that, it's, they don't exist, right? I'll tell people, you know, yes, you're suffering, you're in pain. If there was a magic pill, I wish I could give it to you. There's no such thing as a magic pill, you know, that it's hard work, discipline and hard work with anything, whether it's trying to lose weight or whatever, whatever it is that you're trying to tackle. That's the only, really the only way you got to do the work. That's a great point. So I'm going to probably put that bag of cookies away at this point. Well, no, I don't think putting the bag of cookies is a way. It, putting it away is the answer. It, it, it's it's to not beat yourself up when you have a cookie. If you want to have a cookie, eat a cookie. Um, but but maybe ask yourself before you eat the cookie, why are you eating the cookie? <laughs> yeah, and I'm asking myself that question right now, and I and the answer might surprise. I don't think it would surprise you, but it's it's kind of the flip side of trauma. And tell me how common this is. Growing up. Um, my family was like the typical family of my generation and food was love. Mm -hmm. When I, um, skinned my knee or I lost a T-ball game, my mom would make a special treat. She might Mm -hmm. bake some cookies and my mom's a wonderful mom. Your mom is a wonderful mom. (laughs) Wonderful mom. She's the best. And that's what people did then. And I think what that has instilled in me is that, Food is love, therefore food is comfort. It's almost the flip side mm-hmm. of, of turning to food during trauma. So mm-hmm. how does someone interrupt a behavior pattern like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, if it is serious trauma, I would say, you know, to go see a professional and, and, and talk to someone about it, you know, to deal with what's truly going on. But to answer your question, if you know, if, if someone notices that they are using food as a way to cope, um, is to think of some alternative coping strategies rather than using food. So like I mentioned earlier for me at the end of the day, you know, I love to take my bubble bath and I've got my whole setup with my bubbles and everything. And, and so for me that works, um, you know, I also practice, um, yoga every day and I work out. And for me, that's my therapy. That's the way that I, I deal with my stress. 
Um, and so for a person to ask themselves, what are some alternative coping mechanisms that are adaptive that they could imp- use um, as opposed to to food or whatever else it may be, the drugs or alcohol or, you know, all the other stuff I mentioned. I think those are, are great points. And, and it seems for some people that might just be starting on their fitness and weight loss journey, it might seem counterintuitive that something like exercise can replace food as a way to soothe yourself. But as speaking from uh, someone with experience, uh, yeah, in the beginning, it was a little hard to get on the treadmill and run. But slowly over time, I I just started enjoying that physical activity more and more. And the food wasn't the reward anymore. It was the activity itself, which um, for me was an awesome switch. Yeah. Well, it takes 30 days to develop a habit. So it, do, it does take time. Like I said, hard work and discipline, not, change is, is not easy. It never is easy, you know, but if you stick with it um, and you give it time for most people, you'll see, you'll, you know, you'll reap the benefits. Yes, absolutely. So just to close out, any uh, you've given us some great tips, but you want to just summarize some of the top things that people should think, be thinking about as they embark on their weight loss journey. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you mentioned being being kind, practice practicing kindness for yourself, others and yourself, um, to pay more attention to any negative self-talk or any of these cognitive distortions that you may be engaging in. Um, and to maybe, um, if someone doesn't know about mindfulness to, uh, you know, you can Google, like there are plenty of books about mindfulness to start practicing mindfulness. And, um, if need be to seek professional help because, you know, if, um, if someone's really suffering to, to really talk to someone about whatever it is that they're going through and if they are using food as a way to cope, you know, to help them get through that. I think that's excellent advice. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. For being on our podcast. So <laughs> nice having you here. So nice and, having. And we hope to have you on again. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on Body Signals. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Cygnos Health. And if you're interested in becoming a Cygnos member, go to Cygnos.com on the web to request early access. Until next time.